Do you ever find yourself with abdominal pain, bloating, unpredictable bowel habits with seemingly no cause? Have you ever thought, could I have irritable bowel syndrome or IBS? In this episode, we discuss what IBS is and what it is not, how it's diagnosed, and treatment options like the FODMAP diet. It's time to demystify IBS. I'm Professor Megan. And I'm Professor Susan, and we're your nutrition profs. We are registered dietitians and college professors who have taught more than 10,000 students about health and nutrition. We have answered a lot of questions about nutrition over the years. Some we get asked every year, and some are rarely asked, but very interesting. We are here to share our answers to these common and uncommon nutrition questions with you. So bring your curiosity and let's get started. Welcome to our class. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our third season. This is episode number 23. That is so hard to believe, isn't it? It really is. But we've got some good ones coming up this season, so stay tuned. Today's episode is a good one, too. Today's question is, what should a person with irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, eat, and what should they avoid? I've had a lot of students report having IBS or having close family members or friends with IBS. You know, to be honest, as a dietitian, I really haven't worked with a lot of IBS patients, so some of this info we're going to talk about today is new to me. But I do have friends and family members who have IBS, and it can be debilitating. So let's define it. What is IBS? The National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Disorders define IBS as a group of symptoms that occur together, including repeated pain in the abdomen and changes in your bowel movements, which may be diarrhea, constipation, or both. But not everyone with IBS has the same symptoms. Right. It's a chronic disorder that typically has flares, which may or may not be caused by triggers. So this means that there are periods of time when symptoms worsen and periods of time with relief. The flares are really unpredictable and the triggers vary from person to person and they can vary over time. Which makes it such a difficult condition to treat. Everyone's IBS experience is unique. I've also heard IBS referred to as colitis, spastic colon, and even nervous colon. That last one is interesting given that a trigger for some people with IBS is stress. The good news is that IBS is not life-threatening, although it can be unpredictable. So how prevalent is it? It seems like we all know someone who has it. Worldwide prevalence of IBS is thought to be around 10%, but that can vary widely. Here in the U.S., an estimated 10 to 15% of adults have IBS. That's more than 30 million people. 30 million people. Wow, that sounds like a lot. And I know it is twice as common in women than it is in men. Yes, and although it can occur at any age, it's usually diagnosed in people under the age of 50. I think my dog has IBS too. (laughs) He hasn't been officially diagnosed, but every couple of weeks, his digestive system starts to make a lot of noise and he'll avoid eating a couple of meals. Yeah, my dog Luke has it too. He's actually on prescription high fiber food to prevent bouts of chronic diarrhea. (laughs) So, wow, as we said, it's pretty common in people and maybe also in dogs. (laughs) 
Well, IVS is responsible for more than 2 million office, inpatient, and emergency department visits annually. In fact, it is the most common reason to visit a gastroenterologist, which is a sciencey word for a doctor specializing in the gastrointestinal or GI tract. Clearly, IBS is quite prevalent, but let's talk about some of the symptoms a little bit more. Okay, common symptoms include abdominal pain, which might be sharp and stabbing or feel more like dull cramping, bloating, which is actually one of the most commonly reported symptoms of IBS. And, you know, some people even experience like visible abdominal distension. Like oh, their well. belly is literally like full and, and that's, painful. That's terrible. Yeah, diarrhea, constipation, or an alternating between these two are also symptoms. And then non-GI symptoms include poor sleep, fatigue, headaches, and even depression. Given these really uncomfortable symptoms, it's not hard to see how negatively IBS can impact somebody. I mean, studies report that those with IBS miss three times as many work days due to their symptoms as those without IBS. Yeah, it can cause quite a bit of self-imposed isolation if you're fearful to go too far from your home toilet, which, Mm. as you said, can affect work, but also social events, eating out, travel, and so much more. And it's expensive, too. IBS-related direct and indirect medical costs are more than $20 billion annually. Wow. One study of almost 2,000 patients with IBS reported that they would rather give up 25% of their remaining life, so like 10 to 15 years of their life, if it would mean that they no longer had IBS symptoms. That is really saying something about that condition. It really is. Um, It's important to note, though, that these same symptoms can be seen with other digestive conditions, things like foodborne illness, gallstones, celiac disease, diverticulitis, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and even colon cancer. We don't have time today to get into all of these other digestive conditions, but we have put a little bit of information in our show notes at yournutritionprofs.com. We also discussed foodborne illness or food poisoning in an episode back in October, and we're planning an upcoming episode about gallstones, so stay tuned. So the symptoms of IBS and these conditions are very similar, but IBS, although uncomfortable, doesn't cause physical damage to the intestinal walls like these other conditions do. And IBS doesn't increase your risk of developing colon cancer. So that's the silver lining? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not much. Yeah. If you're experiencing the symptoms that we mentioned earlier, like abdominal pain, bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, it really is important to see a doctor to rule out these other damaging conditions as having one of them can increase your risk of developing colon cancer. But as we said earlier, the flares are unpredictable and IBS is not an easy condition to live with. So let's talk about diagnosis. The first step is to see your healthcare provider. Only a doctor can officially diagnose IBS. They'll consider your medical history, family history, your diet, any medications, and any supplements you use. They should also conduct a physical exam that involves pressing and thumping your abdomen and listening to see what types of noises it's making. The sciencey terms for this pressing, thumping, and listening are palpation, percussion, and auscultation. That's a lot of science work. (laughs) (laughs) In a few weeks, we're going to do an episode on stomach growling, and we're going to go into a bit more detail about these sciencey words. And it's a good episode. We hope you listen. 
If you have IBS symptoms plus issues like anemia, blood in your stool, unintentional weight loss, or a family history of colon cancer or inflammatory bowel disease, more extensive testing such as a CT exam or a colonoscopy may be required. So it sounds like much of the diagnosis for IBS is ruling out these other conditions first. Exactly. Unfortunately, there is not a singular test that indicates a definitive diagnosis of IBS, but there is a screening tool called the ROM4 criteria to help. So to be diagnosed with IBS, you'd have to have recurring abdominal pain at least one day a week within the last three months, and that pain must be associated with at least two of the following. The act of pooping, a change in poop frequency, and or a change in the poop appearance. Is it harder? Is it looser? Etc. These symptoms must be present for at least six months prior to diagnosis. Remember the Bristol stool form scale? It was created specifically for IBS, right? Yes. We discussed this in our second episode, which was all about number two. (laughs) So as a quick reminder, the scale was created in the 1980s specifically for the purpose of helping doctors treat people with IBS. Patients would use the scale to evaluate their stools and they would report back. This gives doctors an estimate of the patient's intestinal transit rate, which would help them determine the best dietary treatments, like whether to follow a low or a high fiber diet like Megan's dog. And we actually made a Bristol stool form cake. All seven types of stools are depicted using various types of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) We posted pics on our website, Instagram, and Facebook, so take a look. We worked really hard on that cake. And it was delicious. Yes, it was. (laughs) So since not everyone with IBS has the same symptoms, are there different types of IBS? Yes. IBS-C indicates constipation as a predominant factor. IBS-D is diarrhea dominant, and there's a combination of these alternating between constipation and diarrhea that's called IBS-M or mixed IBS, and this appears to be the most common type. Yikes. And just to keep things interesting, there's also IBS-U or unclassified IBS. These are patients who meet the diagnostic criteria for IBS, but not specifically IBS-C, IBS-D, or IBSM. Wow, alphabet soup. <laughs> what about self-diagnosis? I know a lot of people who just assume they have IBS because of some of their symptoms, like my dog Baxter. Accurate diagnosis is really important. Self-diagnosing IBS can be problematic because like we said earlier, GI symptoms like these can be indicative of several different things, some of which are much more serious than IBS. We're not trying to scare you. We just want to emphasize that it's really important to get things checked out. The average time to diagnosis after symptoms of IBS begin is over six years. So if you're experiencing symptoms and you have access to a healthcare professional, please don't wait to see them. It's important to know what's causing your symptoms so that you can get the best treatment. Yeah, and we'll get to treatments in a minute, but let's first talk about possible causes. Well, unfortunately, we don't have a definitive answer. (laughs) But genetics, stress, infections, use of antibiotics, and diet have all been identified as possible culprits. So it's complicated? (laughs) Of course. But a good place to start may be with something called the gut-brain axis. 
The gut-brain axis is a two-way communication system, and it connects the central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord, to the gastrointestinal system. And this allows the two systems to exchange information and to influence each other's function. The GI end is called the gut microbiome, which we've mentioned in a few episodes now. Right. And it's home to trillions of bacteria and other microscopic organisms. And I actually read that altogether our gut microbes weigh about three pounds. What? Yeah, that's the same as the liver or the brain. Three pounds? I mean, <laughs> I would have not have considered that bacteria I know. <laughs> could weigh that much. Same. Wow. I've also heard that the gut's been called a second brain. Yes. Well, this may seem a little bit crazy, but the chemicals that are created or secreted in the gut, things like neurotransmitters and short-chain fatty acids, they do affect your brain. They can influence our mood, stress, appetite, and even mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. And your brain, in turn, can affect the composition of your microbiome and intestinal movement, permeability mucus production, and even your immune response, which can affect GI disorders like IBS. It's communication errors between the nerves of the digestive system and the brain that are thought to contribute to the abdominal issues often experienced by those with IBS. Incorrect signals from the brain to the muscles of the intestines may cause them to contract more forcefully or for longer than usual. This moves food through the system more quickly, which can contribute to gas, bloating, and diarrhea. Or instead, the muscles may contract more slowly or weakly, and that contributes to constipation. Stress has also been shown to impact intestinal motility, secretions, and immune activation, and may reduce good microbes in the gut, as well as creating an environment for more harmful microbes to proliferate. And I have heard that stress may trigger flares. I mean, I don't know if my dog gets stressed out before his flares, but <laughs> he is a little bit anxious sometimes. Kind of, but seriously, what does my dog have to be stressed out about? He has a great life. <laughs> Well, as we mentioned earlier, genetics may also play a role as IBS can run in families, but scientists haven't found a specific genetic link yet. You know, I have a friend who has IBS and one of her daughters has it. Yeah, I know. I know people like that too. Yeah. But interestingly, getting older is not a risk factor for IBS, which is unusual. For most chronic diseases, risk increases with age, but with IBS, it's diagnosed more frequently in those under age 50. IBS has been found to develop in some people after having an infection of the intestines, a fancy sciencey word called gastroenteritis. The infection could be caused by a virus, some kind of foodborne illness, or excess bacteria in the small intestine. Although antibiotics may be used to treat some of those things, excessive or long-term antibiotic use is a suspected risk factor for IBS. Antibiotics are effective at targeting and eliminating harmful bacteria, but they can also affect the beneficial bacteria as well. And given that this is a nutrition podcast, <laughs> how does diet affect one's risk of IBS? Honestly, the research is unclear. Some dietary issues that might contribute include restrictive eating or going long periods of time without eating. This has been shown to possibly affect microbe diversity. 
poor fiber intake might also contribute, especially in those with IBS-C, and consuming a low-quality diet in general, which, as we know, is associated with increased risk of lots of other types of chronic disease as well. Yeah, for sure. So that is the complicated web of possible causes of IBS. It could be gut-brain axis miscommunication. It could be your genes. It could be stress. It could be some sort of infection. Or it could be something that has to do with your diet. I mean, that's a lot of possible causes. Or a combination. Yeah, right. Okay, so from causes, let's talk treatment. Unfortunately, there is no known cure for IBS, and the condition is complex. Most treatment is focused on managing symptoms, primarily through lifestyle changes, things like increasing your physical activity, decreasing stress as you're able to, and getting enough sleep. There are some over-the-counter meds like stool softeners and anti-diarrheal meds that help treat the symptoms, and I've seen ads for prescription meds like Linzess for IBS-C and Vibersi for IBSD. And of course, diet plays a huge role in treatment. Many people with IBS may be tempted to restrict their diets to avoid symptoms, which can potentially lead to malnutrition and even disordered eating patterns. I can totally see why they would restrict their diets so much. I mean, foods that might trigger flares are not the same for every person. And avoiding flares, those unpredictable flares, is really optimal. Absolutely. But it's important that you don't restrict foods you don't have to. Right. Well, there is a special eating plan called the FODMAP diet. FODMAP is F-O-D-M-A-P. And this diet is often recommended to help individual patients identify specific foods that may trigger them so that their overall diet doesn't have to be so restrictive. FODMAP is an unusual name, so let's explain where it comes from. While researchers in Australia identified a group of nutrients, the FODMAPs, that they suspect are common contributors to IBS symptoms. Avoiding foods with these FODMAPs may improve IBS symptoms and improve quality of life for people with IBS. Always the goal. Yes. FODMAP is an acronym for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. That is a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And FODMAP is much easier to say. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) All right. So these FODMAPs are small carbohydrates that are not completely digested or absorbed by everyone. So in some people, these carbohydrates act more like fiber. They move slowly through the small intestines, attracting water. Whatever is not absorbed in the small intestine will pass into the large intestine. Here, the gut microbiome begins to feast, resulting in gas production. The extra water and gas can cause the intestinal walls to stretch, causing abdominal symptoms. So someone with IBS may want to avoid some of these FODMAPs. Let's address each letter of the FODMAPs individually. So we've already discussed the fermentable aspect, the gut bacteria feeding on these undigested, unabsorbed products. So that brings us to O, which stands for oligosaccharides. This includes fructans and galacto-oligosaccharides, but we'll call those GOS. (laughs) But wait, I have heard that consuming fructans is actually beneficial for your gut microbiome. Don't they feed good bacteria like bifidobacteria and lactobacilli? 
I've also heard that they can decrease the growth of bad stuff like pathogens in the colon, they can relieve diarrhea, and they might even improve calcium absorption. These microbes are also known to produce several beneficial short-chain fatty acids, so why would we want to avoid them? Some people really struggle with their digestion. Their large intestine is just not happy about these fructans being in there. And that can lead to gas buildup, bloating, abdominal pain, especially if they're consumed in large amounts. No, that makes sense. Fructans are found in wheat products like bread and pasta, onions, garlic, asparagus, cabbage, broccoli, and pistachios. Hmm. GOS are found in legumes like chickpeas, kidney beans, soybeans, and cashews. So that's the F for fermentable and O for oligosaccharides, which brings us to D. D is for disaccharide. And this refers to carbohydrate compounds that are composed of two single or monosaccharides. Lactose is the disaccharide found in dairy products, and it seems to be the one that's the most problematic. So someone may lack the enzyme lactase, and therefore they can't break down lactose, which may contribute to their IBS symptoms, or they might also just be lactose intolerant. We're, we're, we're to M now, right? Yes. So M is for monosaccharides. <laughs> These are single carbohydrate units, and the monosaccharide fructose in particular may cause digestive issues in some people. In the body, it's digested and absorbed more slowly, which can lead to bloating. Fructose is primarily found in apples, pears, mangoes, artichoke, asparagus, snap peas, honey, and of course, products with high fructose corn syrup. Fructose is also one of the two monosaccharides that make up sucrose or table sugar. So you may want to avoid it. And it's also part of the structure of fructans, which we've already mentioned. So that was F-O-D-M. The A just stands for and. (laughs) And finally, P for polyols. These are a group of sugar alcohols. Sugar alcohols are unique because they're not quite sugars, they don't contain alcohol, and they're not quite alternative sweeteners either. They are sweet, but typically not as sweet as sugar. And because they're only partially digested, they don't raise blood sugar levels as much as sugar does. Sorbitol and mannitol are two polyols of particular note within the FODMAP diet. These are found naturally in some foods. For example, sorbitol is found in sweet corn, pears, apples, blackberries, and stone fruit. And mannitol is found naturally in cauliflower, mushrooms, and snow peas. But polyols are often synthetically produced and added to processed and low-carb or sugar-free foods. Yeah, I I see them in the ingredient list of a lot of low-carb or keto products that, you know, in grocery store popular right now. Polyols are particularly interesting because many people who don't have IBS suffer from malabsorption of these compounds. Because of this, the FDA requires warning labels on foods containing sugar alcohols saying excess consumption may have a laxative effect. Hmm. If you're looking for polyols and ingredients lists, most polyols end in idol, I-T-O-L. So sorbitol, mannitol, maltolol, and xylitol. And then, of course, there's one outlier, the polyol isomalt. Okay, so that's the FODMAPs. <laughs> we did it. We did it. 
So those are nutrients that are most likely to be triggers, but there's actually a bit more to the FODMAP diet as a whole. Of course there is. (laughs) I mean, nothing about IBS is easy, right? (laughs) Exactly. So we don't want you to just avoid all FODMAPs forever. Instead, the FODMAP diet consists of three phases. The first is quite restrictive. It involves minimal consumption of foods containing all the FODMAPs, typically for two to six weeks. So it's an elimination diet. Yes. And that's a lot of foods to avoid for those two to six weeks. I mean, wheat, dairy, onions, garlic, a whole bunch of other fruits and vegetables. It is, but if it can help you identify your specific triggers, it definitely seems worthwhile. Yeah, probably. So after eliminating these foods and seeing an improvement in your symptoms, phase two begins with the reintroduction of one FODMAP group at a time to identify which group or groups may be a trigger for you as an individual. This lasts about six to eight weeks, the slow reintroduction of foods. And that makes sense, right? As you reintroduce foods and you don't have a flare, you can just continue consuming those foods. Right. Once you've figured out what triggers your flares, phase three is personalization. So this is an individually designed diet that is nutritionally adequate and minimally restrictive, but still helps you minimize your IBS symptoms. It's really rare for a person to be intolerant of all of the FODMAP categories. Another thing to keep in mind is timing. It takes a while for those FODMAPs to get to the intestines after you eat them and trigger symptoms. So you shouldn't assume that if you don't have symptoms right away that it's not a trigger or that if you do have symptoms right away that it is a trigger because guess what? It (laughs) could be something else. Yes, like the gastrocolic reflex. Hmm. This is a sciencey phrase for the stimulation or movement of the GI tract that occurs immediately following consumption of food. People with IBS often experience an exaggerated gastrocolic reflex. So it's the act of eating itself that may initiate this pooping or bowel movement, not necessarily any specific food. Yes. And this reflex can also be intensified if you've eaten a very large meal, a high fat meal, or even if you've had a very large cold beverage that you drink rapidly. So the combination of any of that that we just talked about with IBS could be particularly troublesome. Yes. But back to the FODMAP diet. (laughs) So phase one and two are not meant to be followed for extended periods. They are only used to determine if any FODMAPs are exacerbating an individual's IBS symptoms. Again, with very restricted diets, there is a risk of malnutrition and it may even play a role in the development of disordered eating. That's a really great point. And that's also one of the reasons why it is not meant to be followed alone. It's really best to do this FODMAP diet with the assistance of a registered dietitian who's trained to help with this. I actually took a certification course in the FODMAP diet and it is complicated. (laughs) Even as a registered dietitian, there was so much to learn. There were so many more foods containing FODMAPs than I would have thought and I already knew of several of them going in. Yeah, it does seem like there are a lot of foods to avoid in phase one. There were several other really surprising things I learned in that course. For example, people often blame gluten for their digestive issues. Well, the research actually suggests that it's the fructans in wheat that are much more likely a trigger than gluten. Wow. So I guess some people with IBS may feel better if they avoid wheat, 
but not for the reason they think. That's so interesting. I know. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about this earlier. Many GI issues have similar symptoms, so it's important to determine what's specifically causing yours. All right. So beyond FODMAPs, are there other dietary triggers? Yes. Um, <laughs> of course um, there are. <laughs> another possible dietary trigger is fiber and foods that are more likely to create gas in the body. So these fibrous and gassy foods would be things like beans, lentils, some vegetables like cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts. There's bran, which is most commonly found in whole grains and wheat products, and also carbonated beverages obviously cause a little bit of gas. However, for others, fiber can improve overall IBS symptoms like my dog Luke, but it's important to note that Anytime you're adding fiber to your diet, that you should do it slowly and make sure to drink extra water to prevent negative GI effects like bloating. So try fiber and see if it works and it might not, but it might. Exactly. Okay. A lot of, most of these foods that we just mentioned are also on the FODMAP list. Yeah. And so considering that gas and bloating are really prime symptoms of IBS, it kind of makes sense to try it. There are also some reports that high fat and or fried foods and even caffeine may trigger IBS symptoms in some people, but more research is needed. Okay. So the possible triggers would include the FODMAPs, maybe fiber, high gas foods, high fat foods, fried foods, and maybe caffeine. Wow. Lots of lots of possible <laughs> triggers. Yes, but remember, it's extremely unlikely for all of these things to serve as a trigger for one person. And that's what makes treatment of IBS so complex. Each person has different triggers, and triggers may even change over time. Wow, makes that even harder. <laughs> I know. It may also help to keep a food journal for a couple of weeks where you would record everything that you would eat and drink and the times when you would eat it. And then you'd also record any IBS symptoms you might have and include the time of onset, what the symptom is, and how severe it is. And that can also help you identify possible triggers. This may seem like a lot of work, but it sounds easier than doing the FODMAP diet. And you actually are doing a lot of those things when you're on the FODMAP diet. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, and there are online programs that can help you keep track, although it does take discipline. What about food sensitivity tests? There are so many ads that claim to identify the foods that could be causing your GI symptoms, and it's only for the low, low price of several hundred dollars. <laughs> Wouldn't a test like that be a much more streamlined and scientific way to figure out what your triggers are? No. Oh. <laughs> Students are often really surprised by this. But first, there is no clear definition of a quote-unquote food sensitivity until recently Tests for food sensitivities were only conducted in alternative medicine settings, but over the past five to 10 years, at-home tests have been made available that typically just require a blood drop from a finger prick. So these blood tests, they actually measure immunoglobulin G or IgG. Food allergies, on the other hand, are measured via immunoglobulin E or IgE, which is an antibody that leads to an allergic response. This is a really important difference. IgG is more of a memory antibody. It doesn't actually indicate an allergy or an intolerance. It's really just saying, hey, I've seen this food before. <laughs> The American Academy for Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology states... 
IgG and IgG subclass antibody tests for food allergy do not have clinical relevance, are not validated, lack sufficient quality control, and should not be performed. The European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology also states that testing of IgG is considered irrelevant for food allergy or intolerance and should not be performed in cases of food-related complaints. Those are pretty damning statements. <laughs> yes. So your nutrition profs recommend that you save your money and skip this type of quote-unquote test. Okay. So enough doom and gloom. We've covered several things, including foods that may negatively impact your gut. Are there any foods that we would recommend? Yes. Although these two can vary quite a bit by individual as well. But in general, things like eggs, meat, certain cheeses like brie, cheddar, and feta, (laughs) almond milk, and grains like rice, quinoa, and oats are usually okay. And what about fruits and veggies? Low FODMAP vegetables include eggplants, potatoes, tomatoes, cucumbers, and zucchini. Fruits can include grapes, oranges, strawberries, blueberries, and pineapple, and even more. I like all of those. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd probably be readily available at most supermarkets. Yeah. But most importantly, find the foods that work for you. This is why we highly recommend working with a GI-focused registered dietitian, if you can, to help identify your specific triggers because it is so complex. And, you know, we can't forget about probiotics. There are so many probiotic supplements that claim to improve IBS symptoms. Yeah, probiotics are a pretty popular approach. They're sold as powders, capsules, and even gummies. And research suggests that those with mild IBS may experience some symptom improvement with probiotic supplementation. But with so many individual species, preparations, and strains, there are a lot of conflicting or non-generalizable findings. We really recommend speaking with your GI doctor or dietitian Because that would be trial and error too, Exactly. And don't forget about foods, right? I mean, kefir and other fermented foods like yogurt, sauerkraut, and kimchi contain probiotics that help keep the balance of bacteria in check in your colon, and they're found in yummy foods. (laughs) If you haven't already, make sure to check out our episode about kefir. Definitely. It seems like it would be really daunting if you had IBS to try to keep track of everything. Well, good news. There are several IBS and FODMAP apps available. The Monash University FODMAP diet app is the one I have experience with. It's out of Australia, but has several international food options, and you can filter by country, which is helpful. It uses a red, yellow, green approach to identify high, moderate, and low FODMAP foods. You would also track your symptoms there. So we'll link it in our show notes, but there are several others available. All right. Anything else with IBS? Well, not exactly a medicine. Um, Fecal microbiota transplantation, or FMT, is another possible treatment that's been identified for IBS. Wow. I mean, fecal transplants are so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And FMT is exactly what it sounds like. You transfer fecal matter from a healthy colon to an unhealthy colon. This can be done through colonoscopy, an enema, and even oral capsules. (laughs) Yowza. You know what? When we talk about this in class and FMT comes up, some students are usually surprised that such a thing exists. 
and others are usually a bit grossed out. (laughs) Yes, I get that a lot. Well, FMT has actually been around for a while. There's some evidence of FMT treatment from 4th century China. What? I know. But it's really only existed in modern form since the 1980s. It's been researched as a possible treatment for various GI issues, food allergies, obesity, and even multiple sclerosis, just to name a few. But does it improve IBS? Well, probably not. A meta-analysis of randomized trials found little to no significant improvement in IBS symptoms following FMT. And while a few individual studies found mild benefit, the effects were short-lived. So while FMT may still play an important role in treating some other conditions, it is not recommended at this time for treating IBS. There has been some controversy surrounding FMT over the last few years, but the first FDA-approved FMT therapy was announced in November of 2022. It is specifically for the treatment of a recurrent bacterial infection called C. diff. You know, we can go on and on about FMT. It's so fascinating. So let us know if we should do a full episode on it. I think we should. I mean, that would be a really fun one. (laughs) Okay. Back to IBS, let's bottom line it. Okay, bottom line. While IBS is a fairly common GI disorder, we still don't have precise answers for its cause or treatment. Symptoms include abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, or alternations between those two. But these are not unique to IBS, and therefore it's important to rule out other conditions. And while it can be a source of considerable discomfort, frustration, and even isolation and decreased quality of life for those that have it, IBS does not cause any physical damage to your intestines. Lifestyle change is the primary treatment for IBS, although there are some prescription and over-the-counter options as well to help with symptoms. Many people self-treat their IBS by following a very restrictive diet, which can lead to malnutrition or even disordered eating. Instead, identify your personal triggers. The FODMAP diet is one of the most recommended ways to do this while also working with your GI doctor or dietitian. These fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols can be found in a wide variety of foods. And food sensitivity testing is not recommended. Save your money. All right, so that's it for IBS. Thanks for listening. Join us next time when we will have a very special guest and we'll be discussing foraging for edible and medicinal plants. You won't want to miss it. Class dismissed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and a list of sources on our website, yournutritionprofs.com. Your homework is to follow us at Your Nutrition Profs on Instagram and to listen to our next episode. You can listen on Amazon Prime, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere podcasts are found. We'd appreciate it if you'd like us, write a review, subscribe, and invite your family and friends to join us too. If you have a nutrition or health question you'd like answered, let us know. We may even do a show about it. Send an email to yournutritionprofs at gmail.com or click on the Contact Us page on our website. Thanks to Brian Pittman for creating our artwork. You can find him on Instagram at brianpittman77. 
See you next time. time.